Welcome to Study Isaiah, the podcast where we examine the language, historical context, and meaning of the book of Isaiah with Dr. Paul Wagner. Because this is the first episode, it's time to get to know the voices you'll be hearing. I'm Tyler Sanders, Director of Communications at Gateway Seminary, and Dr. Wagner is sitting across from me. He is Distinguished Professor of Old Testament Studies at Gateway, uh, a prolific author. He uh, also contributed to the ESV Study Bible. And uh, he has a new commentary coming out with Tyndale on Isaiah. Thank you for being here, Dr. Wagner. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so I had a few questions for you, so listeners can get to know who you are. Uh, and I guess okay. the first one would be, how did you get interested in studying the Old Testament? Oh, um, this is funny, but when I was in seminary, I felt like I, I thought more like an Old Testament professor than a, than a, a New Testament professor, because I... Because uh, at that point, it seemed like New Testament was really into philosophy and stuff like that. And, and I just didn't think that way. I, I felt like I understood the Old Testament much more uh, realistically and, and, and that way. So I, that's why I enjoyed it. And I did well in Hebrew. So that kind of helped both of those areas. So there's a language part of it. Yeah. Too. You were into Hebrew. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Uh, what about Isaiah? What was particularly interesting to you about Well, Isaiah? I started that when um, I started uh, doing my PhD. And my supervisor, uh, whose name was Ronald Clements, had just written uh, something on Isaiah. And I'd always in, was intrigued with the book, and especially those passages that I had no idea how the New Testament understood them. I mean, it seemed like they were taking them out of context. And so I, I thought that'd be a really interesting idea to try to figure out. And so, so usually a lot of times you start your dissertation with questions that you have about certain areas. And, and this one was one that really excited me. Was there any other like uh, area of Old Testament studies that you were interested in before you got into Isaiah? Um, well, I've always enjoyed Old Testament theology, uh, you know, uh, seeing the, how the whole book fits together and how it's um, related to each other. So I did enjoy that. Um, but Isaiah kind of puts all that together, it seemed like. Okay, this is more of like an opinion question, I guess. Do you think people are intimidated to read the Old Testament? I think so, because they hear a lot of sermons and stuff like that on the New Testament. If they hear about the Old Testament, usually it's just an illustration for another, you know, they, they hear about the story of David or Noah in the flood and stuff like that, but they don't really have a concept of how it all holds together and, and kind of, you know, where did these people come from? They, did they just pop in and you hear this story and then that's the only thing you hear about them. And that's not really the way it is. So I think it's, I think it scares people that they don't, they, they hardly ever hear about it, so it's it's hard for them to, under, to have a good clue as to how to put the book together again. That was that was my sense, I think, before I came to seminary. It was mm -hmm. like I had heard a lot. I, I really became a Christian. I grew up in church, but I became a Christian more uh, right before I went to college. Okay. And I remember the first book I read was Romans. Of course. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, I would have thought John, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think especially my my first year, it was pretty obvious. Like you hear a lot of New Testament, you're just like that's yeah. where a lot of people preach. A lot of yeah. Bible studies, especially like college level stuff. You know, yeah. there's a lot into that. Yeah, um, you're going to spend a lot of time there. And I think when I was looking into seminary, it was kind of like I don't know. I don't think I know very much 
about this. I can uh, kind of get some of the smaller. Jonah was my favorite book. Okay. And I started yeah. to read that when I was like a little kid. I just was really, you yeah. know, that was captivated me. But, I, you know, I, I, there was things like we really just read like the first few chapters of Genesis. Yeah, sure. like, what's, yeah. Like we would go like from there to like. Psalms. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. you skip so much stuff. So it seemed like yeah. there was a lot that was being missed. It was kind of hard to. Yeah. It seemed like there was got to be more to it. But then like I would read and it would just be like, I don't, I don't think I understand this or like who, what's going on historically. Maybe yeah. that's another part too. Like we didn't yeah. really go over that very much. And at least in, in a deep level, uh, that I recall, you know, the history of um, that whole area of the world. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think that's kind of what got me originally interested in it. And I actually was the same. I, when I started to study, same as you, when I started to study Greek and Hebrew, Greek was kind of like, oh my gosh, this is so <laughs> like, not that Hebrew is uncomplicated, but it, I was like, I kind of got it a little bit yeah. easier. And uh, especially before I, I, you know, I guess I should disclose now. I was one of Dr. Wegner's students. Uh, I took a class in uh, Hebrew exegesis class on Daniel. We translated the whole book. Yeah. There were only three of us in the class. Um, Three, or I guess four, including you, there were three students. And uh, it was a challenging class in all the, the right ways. Uh, it was tough, but it was, it was a good class. But it was, it was one that helped me, you know, put a lot together about how, okay. you know, how I understood the Old Testament. I hope the podcast is a little bit similar to that. This is kind of like the outside of class study of Isaiah where we there can ask go. questions and we're going to be getting into it in a little bit more informal kind of way. Having said that, let's get to our first segment. Okay. The Hebrew word of the day. Okay. What is the Hebrew word of the day? Well, I've, I thought that, I think the idea, I, the main idea of Isaiah is will the people ever obey? And, and so my Hebrew word of today is I was going to do the word obey, but there really is no Hebrew word for obey. But you put together the word shema to listen or hear and ba to, so it's like almost literally to hear in. And so and it's probably better to translate to listen to or something like that. But that, that's the Hebrew word for obey. Uh, so you put those two together and it's like, to hear into something or to listen into something. And I guess the understanding is, is that if you actually are really listening to God, you really are going to obey him because it's a natural flow out of that if you're really listening. So I think that's where the word and the concept must come from. I like that. That's great. Well, let's dig into that a little bit then. Okay. So if our word of the day really means to hear into, to listen. Who are they going to be listening to? Well, hopefully it was God. But all the way through Isaiah, you're going to have a lot of other voices. And a lot of times the kings are listening to other kings or, or calling on Assyria or, or Egypt for help when they should be call, calling on God for help. And so I think that's kind of the key of the book is they've got to get back to actually listening to what God has to say. And they seem to keep doing real bad at, at not doing that. But the good news is, at the end, they will. And, and so the, the good news is, is, is by the end of the book, there's a, a wonderful future for Zion because God has actually got people that actually believe in him and actually are obeying him and are faithful to him. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the person, Isaiah? Okay. 
He was, um, we don't know a lot about him, but uh, he's an 8th century prophet, which means he's living in the 700s, which also means he was he was married because we know in chapter 8, he's got a wife and he's got kids. Actually, his wife and his kids are actually part of his ministry because um, she's called a prophetess. Um, and as far as I can tell in chapter 8, what that means is she's having a child and that child is going to have a message. That birth of the child is a message to the nation. So, so she's called the prophetess like that. And then in, in chapter eight, also, it's talking about their kids being signs and wonders for the nation of Israel, meaning that uh, their names, I think, one is Maharshal al-Hashbaz. You know, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you hate to name your kids something like that? <laughs> but it, it means um, hasten is the booty or speedy is the prey, meaning, meaning destruction was coming very quickly. And that's basically what his name was. And so he was a message to the nation. Another one is Shir Yeshuv, and that means a remnant will return. And that in, in that name, they are a message to the nation of Israel. Even Isaiah means God is salvation. And that's a message for the nation of Israel. So even their names are something that is going to tell the nation what they need to know. And is Isaiah speaking primarily to, you say to the nation, is he speaking to the nation? Is he speaking to the king? Or is that kind of, when yeah. you speak to the king, that is a message to the nation? How does that work? I think each passage is a little different. Sometimes, like chapter 7 and 8, those are those seem to be specifically to kings. Uh, well, at least 7 is to Ahaz for sure. Um, and so, but once a king, if a king gets the message, then hopefully the the people will too. But I think other times uh, Isaiah realizes that the, na the nation isn't listening. And so he'll go to a remnant and talk to specific people and that will listen. So it, it, I think it's uh, different places. It might be different messages and to different people. Okay. Oh, and one thing I didn't tell you is that Isaiah is, uh, we think he was a scribe. Uh, Chronicles tells us that he was the one that wrote the uh, oracles of Uzziah. So apparently in Isaiah's younger life, <laughs> he was he was a, uh, a scribe, which then would have put him in perfect, uh, you know, <laughs> situations that later when, when, you know, he's got a message from God, he can then record it and write it down. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the historical context okay. surrounding Isaiah's life. What's going on in that part of the yeah. world? Well, um, right before Isaiah, um, the nation was actually at, at a at a high point. They they were rich, and they were um, during Uzziah's time. Uh, Judah was was just doing a, a great. I mean, they were the kingdoms north of them, like Assyria and Syria. Um, were pretty weak. And so what was happening is Israel and Judah had a chance to kind of expand and, and, and get stronger and stuff like that. And then in the north of uh, Israel, um, Jeroboam II was their king. Um, and so during those times, they were doing really well. And both of those reigned for almost 50 years, um, one of them 52 years. But, but that means that also, if it's a real prosperous time and stuff like that, they're also going to be probably wicked times because people are ripping off other people and stuff like that. So that was happening. And so Isaiah was brought into a situation where at least initially it was a real prosperous time, but a very wicked time. But by the end of his ministry, Assyria had come down with, with the Northern kingdom and pretty much uh, tried to 
destroy Judah to get them on their side. And so Ahaz calls on Assyria for help. And sure enough, that uh, Assyria came across and wiped out the, the northern kingdom and Syria, both of them pretty much. And then in 701, so... It, it, it's it's like a it's like a perfect storm during Isaiah's time. Um, it, he's got like Assyria was really a powerful nation, and and Ahaz had almost gotten the the southern kingdom into all this trouble by by calling on Assyria for help. From then on, they're going to be subservient to them. So so Ahaz did a real silly thing that actually put him in under Assyria from then on, uh, at least for a good hundred years. Um, but it's during that time that Isaiah is called to be a messenger for God. It was, it was probably one of the hardest times. Probably the hardest time is when they go into captivity. But this is probably a hundred years before that. And they're, they're in a pretty difficult time period. And God calls him to... And, and during his time, the nation did listen, at least to some extent, because in 701, God delivers them miraculously. And even then, it was something that, that they they didn't thank God for that or anything. And so it just was another hundred years before they're carried into captivity. It's interesting. That happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's true. Well, you know, it, yeah. it does seem like that that that's a repeated kind of theme to yeah, the like Old Testament. Yeah, we get prosperous you know? and then, yeah. then we yeah, don't rely on God. Yeah. And yeah, right. You know, I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure that's true today, isn't it? I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into okay. like the structure of Isaiah, let's okay. talk a little bit about some of the literary okay. techniques that come in there. So I think there may be some, some kind of terms we could look at a little bit. Yeah. Just just to kind of introduce them for people to kind of know what we mean when we say like chiasm and stuff like that. Okay. So I've got four categories here. I was hoping you kind of help us sure. define what kind of things um, we can be looking for, people can look for whenever they're reading Isaiah. Okay. So one that I think will be, um, people will probably know what, what this is, but they may not have the tools to look for it would be wordplay in Isaiah. Yeah. So what are some examples of wordplay? Like, what do you mean when, yeah. what, what does that mean in Isaiah? Um. The problem with word plays is a lot of times in English, you can't catch them. Um, like there's two really interesting ones in chapter five. If you look at verse uh, seven, it actually says, and he looked for justice, sa'ak, but behold, bloodshed. It's a word that sounds just about like it. And then for righteousness and behold, a cry of distress. So in, in the Hebrew, those are, those are words that sound alike. But we miss that in English. So, so we wouldn't even know that that was a play on words. So some of them are going to be so subtle, we'll miss them. Um, and another one is in chapter 7, where he's talking about, in, it's in verse 9. And it says, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. Okay, here's where it is. If you do not believe, you surely shall not last. Well, we don't catch that at all. But in Hebrew, the word believe and last are actually the same word, just in different forms. So it's a play on that word that we actually miss. So, so word plays are things that unless somebody told you, you'd miss them probably. So that's that's one thing there that if we've come across those, I'll try to point them out because it because I think otherwise you'd miss them. You know, in English you can't always catch them. Yeah, your best bet to catch word play. You're gonna to have to have some kind of source that's going through the. the I think Hebrew, so. The probably, Hebrew, right? I think yeah. so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get too deep into uh, all these different, uh, all the different places we could go looking at Isaiah, 
let's do kind of a little short overview of like what are some important topics in Isaiah studies? What are some of the important things that, you know, like if people pick up a commentary or maybe even reading like introductions or or, uh, notes in a study Bible, what are some of the important things that are going to need to be talked about? I I imagine authorship is one. Yeah. And that one, I think we should do a whole podcast on because it's it's a complicated thing. That's a big one. Okay. We'll do a a whole episode on that one. Structure. Yes. That's another big one, right? And we could cover that one probably today. Tell us some of the major sections of the book. I think the biggest division is after chapter 39. So after you've got chapter 39, you've got a gap of 150 years, and then you've got chapter 40. And and it it you know, it it, it talks in chapter 39 about them going into the Babylonian captivity. Um, look at chapter 39, verse 6. Behold, days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. That's the only thing they hear about Babylon. Most of the time they're talking about Assyria. Assyria is their big enemy. Get to chapter 39, it mentions one thing, that one of these days they're going to be carried off into Babylon. And then you start chapter 40 and they're coming back from Babylon. So that's that's why the authorship issue is a real problem. It jumps 150 years, and a lot of people argue you just can't you just can't have something like that in a book. Usually, prophecy is trying to help a nation understand what God wants them to know. Well, that is true, but I think also what God wants them to know is what's going to happen if they don't obey, and that's kind of what's happening here. So God's actually letting Hezekiah know. That because he did a stupid thing by showing the Babylonians all the riches in his house, what's going to happen is one of these days, they're going to be carried off into Babylon. And then chapter 40 comes, and they're coming back. So, so that's kind of the biggest division in the book. But there's other things. It, it, Isaiah has a really interesting structure in that chapter 1, there's an introduction. Uh, it, it says this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's a a normal introduction to a book. Uh, Most prophetic books or, you know, prophets have that kind of an introduction. But then in chapter two, one, you've got another one. It says the word which Isaiah, the, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's got almost the same things, except this time it doesn't tell the kings that are there. Then in chapter 13, you've got another break and another introduction. Look what it says. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So you've got three introductions to the book. And I actually think they're matched by three refrains in the last part of the book. So in chapter 48, the last uh, verse, it actually says this. There's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. And then in 57, the very last verse says, there's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Almost the exact same refrain. And then at the end, there's like a climax. Look at chapter 66. The very last verse says, and they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire shall not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's like, there's no peace for the wicked to the nth degree. So those are, those are the kind of the structure of the book. So you've got three introductions that are matched by three refrains. And I actually think that's 
a really interesting structure to keep the book held together. This is one of my strongest arguments that Isaiah wrote the book because you've got three introductions, three refrains. It'd be really hard for somebody who's building this in little, you know, bits and pieces, because that's kind of the most common view right today is that Isaiah, uh, second Isaiah kind of built upon first Isaiah and the book grew. But how is he going to do that when he's got this ex same structure in there that's matching each other, three introductions matching three refrains? Either one author has to put that together at the same time, or I guess the other possibility is somebody at the very end could look at that and say, oh, I can make a nice, nice structure here. So I guess that is a possibility, but it seems more unlikely to me. So it seems like right. that structure suggests that there's a unity to the book. So these kind of the the three intros and the three refrains, that that really is a unifying feature because that's also, from what I can tell, right, those are in the first section and the second section. Yes. Right? Like, so they would yeah. have been separated if people thought it was like, yeah. first and second Isaiah would be the uh, yeah. 39, 1 through 39 and 40 through 66. Is that what first yeah. and second Isaiah? Uh-huh. Okay. So, you know, what's funny is that even people today that argue for second and third Isaiah, they don't see that those refrains as an important part of the structure. And that that kind of surprises me because that, that was one of the first things I saw is that these things are matching each other. So that, and then, and then there's a lot of themes from between, from between chapter one and chapters 55 or 65 and 66 that actually, um, you, you've got them in the first chapter and you've got them in the last chapter and they're, they're, it seemed like they're intentional. So it's really, it's probably not helpful to think of Isaiah as like almost chapters in a row, really like this isn't sections that are kind of like chronological or any, or as much as they are like. This is an interconnected. Yes. What kind of, you got a little bit into it, but like, what are the yeah. specific relationships then that are happening between the first yeah. chapter and like that first refrain? There's what, like textual things that are happening there that are connecting them? No. Well, what I would actually argue is that the, the introduction, the first, the first chapter, that's, that one actually can be dated pretty clearly because it says in chapter, uh, chapter one, verses seven and eight, it's talking about Jerusalem when everything is destroyed around it, but Jerusalem is standing up like a little hut in the middle of a field. Well, that actually fits 701 perfectly. But then you get to chapters two through four, and it seems like they're talking about a totally different time period. So it would seem like to me, chapter one is probably an introduction to the whole book mm -hmm. and then chapters two through four. And, and basically what's gonna happen is that these, um, these themes are gonna keep coming over and over again. So what happens in chapter one is it talks about Israel being a real wicked, you know, and, and, and terrible. And, and it's almost like a law court where he, God calls the, the heavens and earth to come and witness that Israel is such, mm. is such a wicked nation. He says, he even says animals are better than that because animals knows that knows the hand of their master, you know, who feeds them, but Israel doesn't know that I feed them. And, and so it's yeah. really funny. He takes that as an image, but, but that passage there seems like to me, it helps us to know when that's dated. Um, oh, what I was going to say though, is that that same art. So what happens, it talks about them being wicked and all that, but then by the end of chapter one, it talks about God restoring them. There's a, a palistrophe and we'll, we'll talk about that later, but there's a, a palistrophe in it that talks about the faithful Israel or Jerusalem. It's called the faithful city. 
Well, it says it starts out faithful, it gets wicked, but then God in the middle of this palestro stands up and changes it. And he says, I'm going to be relieved of my en enemies and I'm going to clear out the nation so that at the end, Jerusalem is going to be a faithful city again. Well, that message of wickedness, there's going to be a punishment and then there's going to be a restoration is, is throughout the book. So chapter one says it, chapters two through four isn't a smaller unit, but it actually says it. Chapters five through 12, which is a bigger unit, it goes into more detail about how God's going to do it. So it, it's, it seems like to me, there's these units that just keep going over that theme about God, uh, Israel being restored multiple times throughout the book. And so I think that's the, the key theme and how the book holds together. And then you get to chapter 40, it explains how God's going to do it. He's going to bring them back from the Babylonian exile, but that's just a small picture of what he's going to do ultimately to Zion. He's going to bring her back to him and people are going to bring money and all things to Zion and God's going to be ruling there. And it's just an amazing picture for the nation. So that's kind of how the book flows and it just it, it just keep the first couple of chapters just keep going over the same thing only with more detail so what does that do like what is the repetition of that theme oh i think god's trying to tell us something with that don't you i think he's trying to say don't give up you're in you're in a mess right now <laughs> and and things aren't going to get better for a while but ultimately i'm going to bring you back and i think that's the message over and over and over in that book and I think that's what the book is trying to tell us. And the restoration, an important part of that is the listening. Yes. Right. It's the Yeah, that's how that fits in. That's yeah. how that's going to kind of come in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The word seem appears six times, and that's kind of a connective piece, right? That's a connective piece but between one section and the next section? Yeah. Let's go to chapter one, because that's where the first one is. In chapter one, verses uh, 27 through 31... First of all, um, let me tell you where I got this idea. Uh, a guy named Gerald Wilson argued that there were seams in the Psalter that held, held the five books together. And I looked at that and thought, well, it's possible, but I, I didn't, didn't think it probably was a guarantee. But then I started, I thought, well, I wonder if Isaiah has any seams. And it did seem like what is happening is at the end of, you know, we've got that, that introduction in chapter one, verse one. Then at the end, you've got this seam that connects it to the next part of the book. And it, and it goes over the same ideas. So look at, look at verse 27. Zion will re, be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Well, that, that tells us two things. Zion is going to be restored and there's going to be a remnant that's going to be righteous, right? That Her repentant ones. And then the third theme that's pretty clear throughout the book is that the wicked are going to be punished. So look at verse 28. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired. You will be embarrassed of the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, and as a garden that has no water. The strong man becomes tender, his work also a spark, and they both burn together. There will be none to quench them. So you can see like verses 28 all the way to 31 are talking about what's going to happen to the wicked. So those are the three themes, the idea of a righteous remnant is going to come about. There's going to be a restoration of Zion, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But then the wicked are going to be punished. Those key ideas 
keep coming up in every one of these seams. So that's where the first seam is. And now you can see kind of the theme. The, the second seam is in chapter four, verses two through six. And it, and it basically talks about the same kind of things. It talks about a remnant. If you look at verse two, it says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be for the pride and adornment of their survivors of Israel. Well, survivors of Israel means a remnant. Okay, so that's talking about that. And then um, look at verse four. Uh, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and the purge of the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst with a spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. So that's that, that punishment on the wicked. And then at the end, it talks about God dwelling in Zion and being there. So the idea of there's going to be a righteous remnant, there's going to be destruction on the wicked, and there's going to be a restoration of Zion. So every... So those three themes just keep coming up again and again in these. Now, it's interesting because I would have expected. <laughs> now, here's here's the biggest flaw in my in my view, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm at least going to let you know about it. Um, I would have expected the seam to be in chapter 12, right before the third introduction, right? Because in the third, remember that third introduction opens up another section. So I would have thought it would have been there. The problem is, is there's a, what I call a palystrophe from chapters five through chapter 12. Chapter five starts off with a, um, a song of the wicked uh, vineyard. It ends with a praise to God for restoring the nation. So you've got there a, a, a structure that's so clear. I don't think Isaiah wanted to break that structure. Mm. So what he did in my mind is he takes a, a linking word and the linking word is in, is found in chapter three, uh, verse 14. It says, the Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of the people. It is you who have devoured my vineyard. The only other place that that phrase devoured my vineyard is in chapter five in the middle of that song. So I think what he did is he he had that that uh, two through four, and there's a pretty good structure there. He's got the scene there, but he didn't want to interrupt and you know to, to break it and put chapters five through 12 there. So what he did is he put a linking word talking about the, it's you who have devoured my vineyard, and he links it to chapter five, verse five. So let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will destroy its hedge and it will be consumed. That's the same word for devoured earlier. And so, so I think the linking word, it's, it's uh, the Hebrew word, ba'ar, and it catches that. And so you're supposed to realize this is where this palistrophe goat fits into. And so that's, that's my problem with, with the, the seam not quite fitting where it's supposed to, but I think it's because Isaiah had a bigger structure that he didn't want to destroy to put the seam at the end of there, at the end of chapter 12. Right. And so, so it's, it's, it's the one that's a lot more complicated, but the other one's pretty, uh, my next seam is in chapters 36 through 39. It's a big seam, but I th actually think the last seam is a big one too, from chapter 65 to 66, but it, it goes over the same themes. Zion is going to be restored, though uh, wicked are going to be punished. And a remnant is going to be delivered. The interesting thing about the last one is that remnant is going to come from more than just Israel. It's going to come from the nations. Oh. And, and you find that as it builds towards the end. Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting development. I think so. Because that means that it opens up the God's remnant to us even uh, in the New Testament. So it's, it's going to be 
Gentiles even brought in and other nations brought in. So is that something else that's happening in the repetition of these themes? There's development. Yes. I mean, of course, when we get more detail, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's obviously going to happen, yeah. but the idea develops as well. Yeah. And every time it goes through another iteration, I'd call it, I guess, it's going to be developed further and further, and you're going to learn more about it. And sometimes you're going to get new elements added to it. Yeah. But it still keeps those same three ideas. Yeah. So I think it's really helpful to understand that big picture of how the book holds together and that these seams are in there. And I've also got seams for in chapter 48 and 57 too, right and before them. They've got they're, them. They're somewhat of a summary, I suppose, too. Right? Yeah. Is that well, kind of the idea? It's like, yes. That's how, or is that how, maybe that's just a function of how people will recognize it. It's tight enough that it's like, oh. Yeah. Here's connective tissue. Yep. So it's going to it's gonna summarize the idea, but then it also sets the groundwork for the next thing coming. So it'll actually introduce it. Sometimes it, it's a word that's found in the next uh, section, or but it seems like it's now setting it up for this next time it's explained even more. That's very fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think it is. It's, it's helped me understand the book. And it's, I think big picture makes a lot of sense then. You know, I had told you earlier that there's some elements or themes that actually are in chapter one and then in either chapters uh, 65 or 66. Uh, one is uh, Israel's rebellious. That's there. It's in both of them. They despise the Holy One of Israel. It's in chapter one and chapter 65. They worship on high places. In chapter one. Chapter 65, the wicked will be punished. Jerusalem will be redeemed. How to become acceptable to God. That's not actually something you'd expect to be in both of them, but it is. Description of incorrect worship is in both of them. And then that's contrasted to true worship. And then judgment is coming. It's in chapter one. It's in chapter 66. Israel will be honored. That was in chapter one and it'd be in 66. And a remnant will be spared. So it's really interesting. Oh, I've got here that explains that in chapter 66, verses 20 and 21, talk about that remnant coming from all nations. And so it says, and they will bring all your firstborn from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Priests and Levites could only be Israelites and only, only certain tribe in Israel. Now you've got them coming from all the nations. And so it's really interesting. Now he's going to open up his people to the Gentiles and, and even other nations. So I think that's interesting how he's done that. Yeah. Is it helpful to think of the sections of Israel, these kind of subsections? Is it concentric? Is that kind of the way to think about it? The first section and the last section yeah. have a special relationship and then... Well, I, that? I think you've got the, the first chapter and the uh, last two chapters making sure that you know it's a unity. So it's got the same kind of kind of themes in both of those. But then in between, remember I told you they've got that idea of Israel's wicked. They're going to go through punishment and then they're going to be restored by God. Those are, those are more the circles that keep going through. I see. And so you've got those talked about in more detail each time. Yeah. When you get to the, the 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 last part, it's actually talking more about them coming back from uh already being punished because because at least it starts off them being in the Babylonian captivity and and that God's going to restore them and all that. So there is emphasized a lot more they've already been through the punishment. Now right. God's going to restore them. Right. 
Yeah. So it's pretty complicated how these things are interrelated. Yeah. I had a few other things that I thought may be important that we'll eventually cover. Okay. It seems like the big one big question is how Isaiah... You actually mentioned this already, so I'm assuming yeah. it's you. How Isaiah is used in the New Testament. That'll yeah. be a big question we, oh, yeah. we start to tackle. Yeah. It's not, they're not all the same way, um, mm. but Isaiah is quoted quite a few times in the New Testament. I think, right. it's, I think it's like the third most quoted book in the New Testament. Yeah. So... It's funny, though. Each one is handled a little differently, it seems like. The New Testament handles yeah. Isaiah differently? or Yeah, uh, these passages that they're quoting. So we'll, we'll try to do it as we go through them and try to see if I can explain how each one of them is doing it. That's good. That's yeah. good. Another question about the nature of prophecy oh, in yeah. the Old Testament. I mean, certainly yeah. we'll get into that in Isaiah, but that could be a, a cool one to kind of explode. Yeah. How, how prophecy in Isaiah even compares to other prophetic messages in the Old Testament. Yeah. Isaiah has one thing that's kind of interesting that actually, I think, uh, I don't think it's unique, but it's 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 actually really helpful for us to make sure that everyone knew that Isaiah really was a man of God and that he was uh, speaking for God. In chapter seven and chapter eight, you've got what are called short-term prophecies. So they're going to be fulfilled in at the most two, three years, something like that. And and if, if you could trust Isaiah for that he was actually saying what God told him to say for a short-term prophecy, then you could trust him for the long-term. So I actually think that was intentional in the book of Isaiah, where it's going to have some short-term prophecies and then some long-term ones. So I thought that's interesting. Yeah, Pro Prophecy is a, a kind of a complicated thing because sometimes you never know how it's going to be worked out. And so some of these passages, like when we get into Isaiah 7, 14, it's, you know, the, the New Testament picks it up, but you're going, how did he get that out of it? You know, and there's other passages similar to that. So the, the question then becomes, what is, what is the New Testament author doing and how is he understanding that Old Testament prophecy? But I think that'd be best when we get to yeah, him to try to explain it. those. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any other off the top of your head? Some of the themes are going to probably be really important. Like, like you're going to see the title "Holy One of Israel" uh, 25 times. I think it's 13 or 12 times in the first part and 13 times in the second part. So that title is something that really is crucial. And, and in chapter six, Isaiah sees God sitting on the throne, and he's got angels around him calling "Holy, Holy, Holy." Well, that seems to have had effect on Isaiah. And he seems to remember it the rest of his life because from then on, throughout the book, he talks about God being that holy one and that he, even at that point, he, sa he says how, you know, he's a man of unclean lips and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and, and so so I think Isaiah gets that that he is unholy and he needs to have something done to him at that point. If you remember, God brings a, or an angel brings a coal on his, uh, from the altar and puts it on his lips and, and then he can speak for God. So, so that idea of the holiness of God seems to be scattered throughout the book. Zion being restored is, is scattered throughout the book and becomes a major theme. God as a warrior becomes a major theme. In, in one of the chapters in, uh, in the second part, uh, like 63, I think it is, God actually comes from Edom with his, his cloak spattered with blood and said he was destroying the enemies, uh, his enemies in Edom. And so 
God being a warrior is another strong image throughout the book. And so there's, there's just seems like that, those images that are really important. Yeah. Uh, there's probably one other thing we should talk about, and that's, is the book of Isaiah, is the text, you know, pretty certain? Because some people have, you know, there's some books that people have questioned significantly, but the book of Isaiah has what's called the Isaiah scroll, which is, is probably the best preserved a copy of the book of Isaiah. And there's there's two of them. There's something called Isaiah scroll A and Isaiah scroll B. Isaiah scroll B isn't quite as well preserved, but we've got from Qumran, we've got some really interesting confirmation that the book of Isaiah is very accurate. Now, that doesn't mean there's not some uh, questions on some of the passages, you know, some verse here or there. But the big picture is that it's there, this, it's there and it's yeah. and it's a pretty certain text, which is unlike some of the other books that we have. Yeah. It's one of the it's it's got the most talked about of the eschatology. I mean, it it talks about um, now not all in the second part of Isaiah is talking about that future time period. Um, part of it is them coming back from Babylon, but a good share of that is also talking about what Jesus did. So that there could actually be, you know, this suffering servant, you've got that in chapter 52 and 53. And that lays the groundwork for Gentiles coming into the, the family of God, um, uh, him restoring Zion and nations flocking to it. So it would be amazing to, I think, have some kind of a preaching series that explains those kind of themes. Well, that is kind of bringing us to the end of our episode today, I think. Okay. Uh, I do want to thank everyone for listening. And just one final question. What's something a person can read? What's one good source for yeah. a person yeah. who wants to start digging into Isaiah? I, I've got an Isaiah commentary <laughs> coming out. So that's, that's what I think would be a really good way to, to, to actually get into it. Um, but there are also a, a lot of other books. Um, John Oswald has done a, a great commentary uh, to volume uh, work on the book of Isaiah. And it's, it's amazing. You know, it's, a, it's very thorough. It's a, um, a real deep dive, you'd call it because it's, yeah. it's very detailed. Um, uh, but I'm hoping that mine will also be more of a, it'll be a deep dive, but it also be more, uh, affordable. Um, John Oswald says a two volume work and they're both huge. So they're very expensive. So, um, this one is going to be hopefully a lot more reasonable. So we'll see. Well, again, thank you for listening and be sure to join us next week as we study Isaiah. Isaiah.